I spent most of my time in Delhi. I went to medical school in Delhi, worked at Niti Aayog, which is the government of India's apex policy think tank, and was super involved in things both academic and non-academic. But I was always very aware of being the only Muslim, only Muslim girl, only Muslim woman wherever I went. I was also very aware of within my family. I was also often the only woman doing something, going to medical school. not pivoting but at least being way more risky with her career choices than anyone else and then of course going for my masters to the US so i was very aware of being the only one doing this both for my hindu friends being the only muslim and then for my muslim family being the only woman doing this i was again very intrigued by how when i was working as a doctor in a government hospital that was the one time i did see a lot of muslims and that was in my patient population and the reason that was happening was i was working at a tertiary or a multi speciality hospital in delhi which was a government run facility which means it was basically free so you were catering a lot to urban and peri urban poor where you see a lot of muslims and so that's when i started <laughs> finally seeing some representation i was like okay <laughs> i'll take whatever i get um, but the issue i noticed over there was you would have women come and this would definitely happen more for muslims than for non muslims they would come to the obs gynee ward and if we tried to counsel them for family planning which was normal protocol i could see how they had absolutely absolutely no agency in being able to say yes or no and even if they wanted to say yes they would tell us no because their husband wouldn't allow which made me then wonder that okay my love has been healthcare that's why i became a doctor that's why i care about public health and public policy but does providing healthcare access actually change the agency and independent decision making powers that women have or lack and which is what pushed me towards thinking about economic independence because i really think that social and political independence can be gained through having economic heft in your decision making in your negotiating or at your negotiating tables that was dr ruha shadab she is an award winning medical doctor social entrepreneur global health consultant and ceo of ledby foundation india's first leadership incubator that focuses on improving equity in the workplace and the professional development of muslim women Aditi, what did you think of what Dr. Ruha Shadab just shared? What I loved about this, what I loved about what Ruha said, was that this is about equalizing. I mean, money is supposed to be the great equalizer, right? And so, when you equalize, when you give economic heft to the women, they will be more capable of making their own decisions, or at least have the ability to make their own decisions and think about themselves. as opposed to what you know society or their family or the world wants out of them. Yeah, I think so and I love to me that moment of epiphany she has where she was physician and OBGYN working with women and realizing that they didn't have the power in the dynamic of their families and their partnerships to take any amount of choice but perhaps with work and with a job that helps level that negotiation table a bit more and they have a bit more agency to make choices for on behalf of their own bodies and their own health i think that you know especially when you focus in on a group of people that have been historically marginalized and have been marginalized in a very specific way 
then those things need to be addressed in a very specific way like you cannot go to the average muslim woman and say lean in you know what i'm saying like believe yeah. in yourself she's like i believe in myself but i have all these other you know pins that i have to knock down before i can get out there and you know exhibit that belief in myself and so mm. it's very powerful when someone i mean and especially when the person who is doing the leading uh, or you know has got the initiative is like belongs to the community itself she understands the nuances and can mm. offer more specific solutions to the problems that muslim women in the workplace have so i think what i find really inspiring about dr ruha shadab and what i'm really excited to hear more from her today about is how do you tailor make those kind of challenges those kinds of solutions those negotiating skills to those that will best serve india's muslim women and where we are with workforce participation and oftentimes i think you know when we talk about negotiations we think about it's an external thing like money you're negotiating for a gig you're negotiating in the market you know whatever but a lot of that negotiating is within the family and it's negotiating to have the power and the space to be able to make some choices for yourself about what you're going to do and your own body and how you're going to spend your life so i'm really excited to talk to dr ruha shadab today to hear more about this Ruha, we're very glad that you are joining <laughs> us. I do love the name "Women in Labor" because the first thing that comes to my mind is women in labor, <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and it's kind of it's smart not just because it like means two things, but it also I was thinking of just the pain of being in labor and then the pain of not being in the workforce. Um, I thought it was pretty smart. Thank you. You know, I went through a lot of trying to convince Christina that this was the name we should stick with. Christina also had some amazing name. Like the the one that she had was 7 to 7, which I thought was really cool that like, you know, women work from 7 in the morning to 7 in the yeah. evening at work and then 7 to like And then se- But no, thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ruha Shadab. What a friggin' pleasure it is to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you pronounce my name completely correctly. So wait, kudos. but what are the what are the various pronunciations you get for your name? I think Shadab. People just focus on the wrong A, or it could be Shadab, or Shadab. <laughs> and of course, I've heard Shadab a lot, which people think is so witty. Like I'm 32, and I still have like new friends come up to me like Ruha, Ruha, Shadab. <laughs> <laughs> I love how proud you are of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> And each one thinks they've done it originally, right? Yeah. Honestly, It's I'm that cute, friend. Though. I'm that friend. If we were meeting <laughs> if we were meeting in a slightly less formal uh, in place, I would have been like, "Yeah, yeah, shut up, boy." Shut. <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh man. Maybe what we should do is just start with you know, sort of a step back and look at where we are with the labor force participation rate specifically amongst muslim women can you tell us a bit about that yeah sure so i think a statistic most of us are familiar with is how the female labor force participation rate in india has declined over the past decade and a half and quite starkly it's almost a 10 percentage point decline or more so in rural areas than in urban areas i also want to paint a picture of the education enrollment progress in india so we had the right to education bill passed in 2009 and now this is 2022 going on so you've had people enter school and graduate from school after rte having been passed so that's fantastic 
and we've seen almost a 10 percentage point increase in enrollments across the board, but that's translated into one percentage point increase in employment of Muslims. So you haven't seen that education pipeline completely translate into the employment pipeline. And now within that, there is a male-female gap as well that unfortunately is starkest within the Muslim community. So you already have a super narrow pipeline and then even within that, the gap is really high. The literacy rate gaps between the two genders or the two sexes rather is 10 percentage points again and the largest amongst any community. So that just goes on to tell you how, how stark the absence of Muslim women is in the workforce. But what I'm talking to you right now is more base of the pyramid. So let's look at the top. The foundation that I run did an analysis to study the number of board members in India's top 500 companies. So that's top 500 companies of India with a number of board members, right? Including the fact that National Exchange Board has a rule that you should need to have at least one female director now on your board as well. So you have that rule going in. We have four, max five Muslim women board members in India's top 500 companies. So the problem is not just at the base of the pyramid, it's also at the top. And even these women who are there are often in companies that are run as family holdings. So you can just see that the network is so much about sharing power. And if you don't see this representation at the top, then who is sharing their power? And then if you don't see folks at the base, who is even asking for this? So this is like a complete desert when it comes to Muslim women participation, unfortunately, and is something that the country should really prioritize because you're losing out on so much economic benefit and economic inclusion that can happen through this. And it's something that we really do need to work on. You know, the fact that you decided to sit in a boat and then put it in shit creek and then row upstream is <laughs> extremely admirable. And I just, you know, wanted to understand, like, how did this start for you? How did, like, I mean, you went to Harvard and then did you decide, you know, sitting in Harvard? Because, I mean, honestly, the idea that you have is incredible and powerful. And it is stunning that, you know, nobody else sort of thought of executing it in the way and the vein that you did and, you know, continues to do so. How did it happen for you? I wish there was one singular moment, but life is actually way more gradual than <laughs> movies tell us, right? I think it was just the culmination of 30 years of being a minority and all these, not microaggressions, but they're probably microaggressions, but constant reminders of your otherness, I think, culminated in this happening. So I spent most of my time in Delhi. I went to medical school in Delhi worked at Niti Aayog, which is the government of India's apex policy think tank, and was super involved in things, both academic and non-academic. But I was always very aware of being the only Muslim, only Muslim girl, only Muslim woman, wherever I went. I was also very aware of, within my family, I was also often the only woman doing something, going to medical school, not pivoting, but at least being way more risky with her career choices than anyone else. And then, of course, going for my master's to the U.S. So I was very aware of being the only one doing this, both for my Hindu friends being the only Muslim and then for my Muslim family being the only woman doing this. And I think that came together. I was, again, very intrigued by how 
when I was working as a doctor in a government hospital, that was the one time I did see a lot of Muslims. And that was in my patient population. And the reason that was happening was I was working at a tertiary or a multi-speciality hospital in Delhi, which was a government-run facility, which means it was basically free. So you were catering a lot to urban and peri-urban poor, where you see a lot of Muslims. And so that's when I started finally seeing some representation. I was like, okay, I'll take whatever I get. Um, but the issue I noticed over there was you would have women come, and this would definitely happen more for Muslims than for non-Muslims. They would come to the OBS gynae ward. And if we tried to counsel them for family planning, which was normal protocol, I could see how they had absolutely absolutely no agency in being able to say yes or no. And even if they wanted to say yes, they would tell us no because their husband wouldn't allow. Which made me then wonder that, okay, my love has been healthcare. That's why I became a doctor. That's why I care about public health and public policy. But does providing healthcare access actually change the agency and independent decision-making powers that women have or lack? And which is what pushed me towards thinking about economic independence, because I really think that social and political independence can be gained through having economic heft in your decision-making, in your negotiating or at your negotiating tables. So I think that's how it pulled me from, okay, healthcare access is not going to solve this. We need to do more. What are some more root causes of this issue that I could potentially address? That was a fantastic answer. And so tell us about Led by. Led by is a social startup that I founded three years back. And what we are is a professional incubator for Indian Muslim women. And what that means is that young Muslim women who are either in college or trying to enter the workforce are provided career advancement services through fully funded programs. So you can be in your, say, final year, penultimate year of college. You come join our programs. We provide you all the training that it needs from being able to position everything you've learned to the best of your ability, to be able to find the right job, to prep for that job, to negotiate for a salary pay, to even communicate with your family if there are concerns over there, to make sure that you don't feel like you're the only Muslim woman, at least in this one circle, and you're able to find other like-minded Muslim women, which doesn't happen often. And so you are provided that entire support basically to make this journey less lonely for you. I love that aspect about, you know, being able to communicate to your family, to sort of be yeah. armed with the vocabulary. And that's very cool. Can you tell us more about that? We were talking about how education or the more educated women get, they might not necessarily get employed. And I think that might have been a policy pitfall almost. Like we should have thought about that, right? If we were Indians setting up this education policy, we should have thought, ki, ek second, one sec, like, what is our mindset right now? If we just provide education with women, actually go into the workforce. We need to get the women in, but we also need to now start thinking about convincing parents or doing some sort of sensitization about letting these women work when they finally come out of school. In our humble efforts, when we were setting up that by thinking of the theory of change, we did think about what are other possible roadblocks in making this happen. So you can also give the woman all the agency you want, but... In an Indian household, there's only so much you can do at your own volition, right? And that's why we knew that having family members or key decision makers in the family getting involved as something that's going to be very, very crucial. So it's also about being able to convince and nudge parents to help these women achieve their dreams. So we do that 
right now with some more soft touch or slight nudges we have the parents show up for our graduation ceremonies and actually speak to the women when we send out diplomas or completion certificates there are posterized letters that are actually addressed just to the parents so we don't send a congratulatory letter to the fellow we actually say dear parent thank you for being for playing such an important supporting role in your child's development so there are all these things to encourage parents who have been there or maybe were on the fence about this and then we also try to bring in male decision makers or important male relatives into the conversation as well to just talk about either what's being thought at that by or, or have an open conversation about what the girl or woman's future aspirations are so right now we're mostly focusing on people who already are yay or are in or are slightly fence sitters so that this can then have some ripple effect i think converting the naysayers is really hard and we do want to get there eventually but right now we're starting more from the yay and fence sitter side to get them involved through this because again in an indian family it's really never an individual's decision that's so cool you know and cuz i totally get this it is about our parents fears for us it is 200% about the things that our parents think that oh my god ye college jayegi wahan pe ladkon se milegi ye college jayegi wahan pe sutta piyegi you know that like those fears that our parents have and then the she movie... might actually do all of those wo thodi na jane wala letter mein dear parent aapke beti sutta mat but it's so cool that such an incredible sort of method to endear parents to the idea of putting your daughter out there and that's a little bit why we aren't afraid to say that we are for indian muslim women because like this one example is very india specific right if i were to take professional development courses or schools from the us they wouldn't have this angle they wouldn't even think about like a parent module because you're 18 and you're out of the house and i think that's why it's so important to have customized solutions for the indian context or whichever other community within india you're coming from cuz that's the only way it's going to work for you i mean if you cut copy paste things from abroad if you cut copy paste things from what work for other communities it's not going to solve the underlying issues that's amazing and i think what you've just said is so insightful i am always curious about negotiating some of these tough conversations what strategies do you help equip young women with in terms of navigating some of those tough conversations that's a big one So one of our flagship courses is a course on negotiation that's actually taught in conjunction with the Harvard Kennedy School and their negotiation project. But again, I don't want white people sitting in Boston to come teach and train Indian Muslim women in negotiation with having zero cultural context. So what we've done is we've co-authored cases with Indian Muslim women as protagonists by interviewing actual fellow or alumni or supporters of that by and identifying moments in their life where they've had to host negotiations so now we have a number of cases that we used to role play negotiation and we also teach them a couple of tactics before that happens so we have say one case in which the lead protagonist is trying to find accommodation in hyderabad and is finding it difficult to get accommodation as a single muslim woman so you're supposed to negotiate that and practice how you would approach that situation and that was actually based off of my cto's actual story then another story is about being able to negotiate 
a salary hike as well as leave from work as you head out for your wedding, which was again based on one of our graphic designer story. So there's a mix of stories that play to either your Indian identity, your Muslim identity, your woman identity, or a mix of all of those. And we use those cases then to have these negotiation simulations. We also then provide one-on-one -on -one coaching for anticipatory negotiations that are happening. So for instance, we've had a couple of our fellows use these classes to prep for a scholarship call where they were able to negotiate a much higher scholarship. For example, we, they were able to prep a prefer a salary hike also which was successful. So that's how we go about this. It's not just this one-off class, which also has customized curriculum, but we also provide handheld support when you have a negotiation coming up. Ruha, so a lot of this is about the external negotiations. What about internal negotiations? I tell you, when I was much, much younger, and my first non-medical job was working for an international health NGO. And I was all of 24 or something. And we had some conference at some fancy center in Delhi. And there were all these people talking to each other. Some one of my colleagues was maybe like a year or two older to me at the organization was going about handing his cards. And I was like, oh God, he's so smart. Like he knows how to do this. And I was just like, I can't do this because I have nothing to offer. And that's at work. It, it would also happen at big dinners. If I would go with my family, my father would be like, go introduce yourself to that man or that politician or that doctor. And I would be like, I don't want to because I have nothing of value to offer. I don't want to go and just be like, a photo saath mein, or like, let's just take a photo together. But anyway, so that I built up from that. So I want to say to the women who are hearing this or listening to this and who might think that they don't have anything to add, you might be right. There is a world in which maybe you are too young right now. But there is also something to be said about satiating people's egos by walking up to them and just telling them you admire their work. So you could, <laughs> you could have no value to bring and just walk up to the country director of an international health NGO and be like, hey, I'm new. I know you've done work in ABC. You do a quick Google check before you walk up to them. <laughs> Say, I really like your work. I would love to stay in touch. And you stay in touch with them. And then 10 years later, they are one of your biggest sponsors. And now you can figure out this is a, a true story that ended up happening. I met somebody at a conference when I was in medical school. He was working for a super large donor agency. Wouldn't tell me the time of the day. For four, five years, he would reply to every third email that I would send. And then I went to Harvard. I worked at ABC organizations. And now he just is one of my absolute biggest sponsors. And I get it. I get like, he's a big guy. <laughs> he couldn't care less. But also people come around and nurturing that was valuable for me. So you always have value, even if it is just telling people that you admire the work that they do. You're so right about this also. Like yeah. you just go and just give your card, not even give your card, just go say hi. Just go say hi, say hi, I exist and move away. You don't have to then stand around and be like, also my favorite soup is palak soup. You just, <laughs> you just go and yeah. make this person aware of your existence, right? Yeah. That's the number one thing I go up and tell people that my favorite soup is palak <laughs> with, soup. With a piece of spinach stuck over here for proof. <laughs> just to be like, me, my favorite soup. <laughs> um, 
जी एंड यू नो वी टेंड टू बी वेरी हेजिटेंट टू गो आउट एंड पुट आर सेल्व आउट देयर इन जनरल जी एंड यू नो वन ऑफ द क्वेश्चन दैट क्रिस्टीना हैड मैंशनड ओवर ह्योर वॉज यू नो अबाउट साइलोज अबाउट वन आई मीन वीमेन बींग शट आउट ऑफ नेटवर्कस बाय द नेटवर्कस दमसेल्वस एंड देन द सेकेंड इज वीमेन एलियनेटिंग दमसेल्वस फ्रॉम द नेटवर्कस टू प्रिवेंट एक्टिव रिजेक्शन what is your take on this and how can we either get past it what do you think so i'm only going to talk about from the women side right now we can get to the people who actually have power and how do we open those gates later on in this conversation i think the fear of rejection is very real and very valid we must ask ourselves though what is the fear that's keeping us from going out and actively networking and it comes back to having confidence and having belief that you do have inherent value right so this fear of rejection needs to be rationalized by telling us as really what is the worst that could happen and what is the best that could happen and this is such such a low stakes game you have really absolutely nothing to lose and once you get good at it you realize it's actually quite a time investment and if you want to do it really well you need to be super organized about it and make sure you're efficient with it but when you're starting off it's a phenomenally low stakes game and you might not even see how it translates into things for yourself a it will and b soon enough you will be somebody building those bridges for other people i use my network way more for helping out or supporting other women than i do for helping me right now at this moment but at the same time i think it's helping me also in just ways of me being able to build those bridges for other people So I think building networks is not just an individual action point. I think it's a collective action point. And we as women, the more networks we build ourselves for ourselves, we are honestly going to be helping so many more women in the future that we can't even anticipate. So I think it's a feminist action point that we all should take up to be able to further the cause of women's inclusion and participation. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of like a collective feminist action point. Sign me up for that. <laughs> I'm curious to. You know, another thing is, like you mentioned that you use a lot of your network to help other women. I think as women, we're used to feeling uh, sometimes on the outs of it's a male-dominated workforce. But I think another part of that is how can we as women make sure that we're really focusing on opening up our ability to pull as many women in as possible. So how can we be better? How can we keep... doing that feminist action point in our in our daily lives and in our own work lives it is hard work because it requires intentionality if you were to close your eyes and live through your life you would probably stay in the same social strata meet the same people and never ever realize that people are living in a million different worlds on the same planet that you have no exposure to so you need to be intentional and recognize that there are all these glass walls that you've surrounded yourself with and you're floating in this one social economic bubble and you need to be able to break that because power is finite and we need to share it and especially if you are somebody with privilege you must pay it forward so be intentional about whom you're sharing power with are you sharing it with folks who need it the most as well i went to this one 
conference oh man it sounds like i go to a lot of conferences <laughs> i went to this one and i really liked it because it was the first time i saw this happen it was called women in development it was the last thing i attended pre covid and it was run by this white british woman and she stepped on stage to close the workshop the conference she steps in and says thank you i'm not going to say anything more and i'm going to give the floor to rachna basically she gave the floor to a brown woman to come and speak and close the workshop who was also a part of the executing team and that's what's needed if you have power you have to give it up if you have power you have to share it and that requires reflection and intentionality so ask yourself that say who are the women that i help the most think of the five women that you help the most in your professional setup with networking for example or sharing resources do they come from diverse backgrounds do they come from different income backgrounds are they first generation graduates are they muslims are they dalits do they come from the northeast do i have a geographical mix to the kind of women that i help and then actively go and try to find such people so you can definitely find muslim women to support through that bind you can sign up to be a mentor at our platform but i think it comes down to if you have the privilege comes down to being intentional about whom you're sharing that with yanji you know this idea that success and happiness is all actually finite and therefore if i give something to someone or if i give my say contacts you know secrets to success or whatever to someone that it will be robbed from me i guess it comes from the fact that there are so few of us in the workplace that we tend to view each other from that competitive lens as opposed to a more reconciliatory lens is that something that you've observed or am i talking through my ass yet again i think the point of people wanting to guard what they have is very true and whether it's limited or unlimited i think is a much longer conversation because i think there's also a whole resetting of resources in a capitalist economy that we need to talk about right and if you talk about it from that lens then things are finite right there is a very very strong moral obligation which in the long term benefits us collectively because if you are able to share power and resources with folks who have historically not had any you help write a future of humankind where we do not redo the injustices of history and i think that would benefit society at large and also in the short time that we live on this planet us individually giving up power is really not going to change our own trajectory we will still live very cushy and plush lives and will not be like oh shit i gave them three units of power up to mera kya hoga um <laughs> but at the same time i would encourage women to also ask for that because this is all assuming that folks have the worst of intentions and everybody is holding power but i also think there are a lot of people a lot of people who want to share it but don't have the right people or don't have folks asking or don't have folks provoking that thought in them and hence we should be asking for that yeah, let's well. renegotiate what asking for it means you know what i'm saying <laughs> like they've they've held asking for it against us for a really long time now let's ask for it and see what happens <laughs> It's like when she becomes CEO she was totally asking for it. Imagine <laughs> that raise she got. She was asking she for was it. Asking she was totally asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> like 
Are there other things that you wanted to share of how we can help expand networks and bring more opportunities to more women? I'll tell you a story, first of all, which I think ties it to how people can use power. So when COVID hit last April, the second wave in India, right, it was it was absolutely horrible. It was such a nightmarish situation in the country. And then after the devastation sort of subsided and we were left to pick up the pieces, what Ledby did was it took out a small stipend to be able to support Muslim women as they tried to get back into the workforce. So this stipend said that we will pay you X amount of rupees a month if you've lost the sole breadwinner in your family and are doing something actively to get into employment. So that could mean getting a volunteership, internship, actively recruiting, anything. If you are able to show us that you're working towards that, we are going to pay you this much money for three months as some sort of bridge. And it was focused on Muslim women because that's the group that we want to solve for. Then folks who are listening in, there are two things we have. We have time and money. And depending on how much you care about this, you use both of them or you use some of them. So in terms of time, reflect on who your mentors, mentees are, try to diversify that. Volunteer with organizations like mine, there are organizations that do professional development for a host of different sub-communities and communities within India. So maybe find one that you resonate with, find someone that is super underrepresented in your own life, volunteer there. The second, which is the easier bit, donate. Right, Donate to organizations that you trust that are doing work in this field, in this industry, in this sector, and support them. So I think there are two avenues that we can think about if we want to push this forward and actually care about it. And folks who are listening in, let me just show you how networking has translated in this conversation. This podcast was also networking. Now I step away with having this film director and one of India's biggest comedians as somebody who knows my name. And I might cash in on that relationship later on to support what matters to me. So so networking is so much more than going to boring conferences and exchanging, (laughs) exchanging cards. It's also about having opportunities where you just meet people, share what you love about or what you love, sorry, and are able to maybe make a couple of friends, have a few meaningful conversations and just expand your circle of influence, expand the kind of people that you talk to, have more people talk about the things that you care about. It is good stuff. Do you know, may I say this, okay? Because I was one of those, I was like, yeah, networking, yeah. You have to go there, give business card, hello, how are you, nice flowers, who gives a shit, right? (laughs) And then, and I have realized that even the attitude of telling someone, you know what, here's everything I have is for you is you end up getting a lot back in return. Is that you end up sort of like, like I had this one friend and she was running, she was very, very into, uh, you know, they meet for breakfast every Tuesday. What's that organization? (gasps) Is it Nashta Key Entrepreneurship? You know, honestly, it must be. (laughs) It was was one of those, and you have to wake up at the ass crack of dawn and not to have a cool conversation, but to like go give your business card to people, okay? And I, oh God, okay. I hated it, okay. And my chachu took me for it first. And then he took yeah. my friend for it next because she was more into it. And she said, Adi, listen, <laughs> you have to go. You have to go. You have to go. Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, yeah, I went with a really sour attitude and, you know, business cards. And <laughs> I was like, hey, main toh, matab, you know, I'm here for the breakfast buffet. 
<laughs> I did a show in Kolkata recently and uh, you know they told me that they had had a booking like a a bulk booking party of 16 and I was like oh you know must be somebody who's like whatever celebrating some birthday or whatever and then it was just this one girl who was like hey I remember I met you at you know that whatever that networking thing 2 years ago and so I saw your poster and I said hey why don't I go see her and this is my entire family And I was like, "Look at that! <laughs> like, I, I sold, you know, sixteen tickets two years later after I was miserable in a breakfast meeting." And so it just, you know, the returns. That's of it, such a good example. Yeah, the returns of it. You never know when they come back to you. It's so much simpler when you just give a shit about what the other person's saying, hear what they have to say, th- say three sentences of your own, and then walk away. And then two years later, you sell sixteen tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and networking is also so much that we do passively right so for example your high school is your network by the way like when you will think about your network it's the folks that you went to school with it's the folks that you went to university with so it needn't be such a contrived word or a word with any negative connotations because honestly we've all been building our network either actively or inactively today's discussion has been oddly sobering as well as you know because we started from the note of hope <laughs> what, what keeps you what keeps you going i bet it's tiring what keeps you going i just don't see an alternative this is my purpose and i wish i had a slightly different answer that you could trace its origin to but aditi this is really what drives me and i don't see any other life for myself than a life in which i'm fighting for the cause of Muslim women's inclusion in the workforce, and it is such a source of joy to be able to work on this. And I know I'm so privileged to be able to work on something that means so much to me. And I don't know how can I possibly not be super thrilled about it and super psyched to work on it every day. It's such a privilege to hear you talk about it too. I mean, if there's anything that like. I can never do or Christina can never do. I volunteer Christina. If there's anything that you know any of us can ever do, you know, to get led by out there or just to get you out there, please let us know. Like I think that you know it would be an honor. For more information on the podcast, please visit womeninlabor.com or search for Women in Labor on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Women in Labor is made by Executive producers Christina McGilvery, Aditi Mittal and Laura Quinn. Head of production May Miriam Thomas. Senior producer Divita Oberoi. Chief of staff Priya Kapoor. Marketing director Mania Sachdeva. American Center team Joy King, Purva Jassi, Min Jong Bae and Radhika Sungar. Junior producer Niketana K. Junior editor Yash Hirve. Mix engineer Karthik Kulkarni. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center, New Delhi. The opinions, findings and conclusions are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State.